Good morning, everyone. We're still waiting for one or two to trickle in, but we'll go ahead and begin. This morning's presentation is Always Prepared to Heal. I know that many of us have had or are in relationships. Every one of us have relationships. And what we want to share with today is how we can apply the healing balm of humility in bringing relationships back that are broken and how we can also witness to non-Christian members of our families. So today, what we would like to share with you, and we're going to try to condense a lot into this session, is how we, as representatives of Christ, can go about healing in our relationships. Let us bow our heads as we begin. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word which gives us an understanding of how we may apply what we learn in our lives and how we can rightly represent you in all of our relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Genesis chapter 27 where we find the story of two brothers. I know you're all familiar with these two brothers. Well, I found it very interesting that I I wanted to know a little bit more about when these brothers were born and how things happened because I had it in my mind about how this story went. And I found it very interesting. The uh, account is that, as we know, two twins, a set of twins, two brothers, were born to a mother and a father. And these two brothers, as all brothers do, did not always get along. One brother liked it this way and the other brother liked it this way. One parent liked this brother more than that brother. Now this is where problems usually start because when we start showing partiality in our relationships, feelings are going to get hurt. Well, as the story went on, as we know, in this particular story... One brother who liked the wild life, liked being outdoors. The other brother liked being by the hearth, liked cooking, liked being by mom. And we find that these two brothers had diverging paths, but they were still in the same household. They were still brothers. Well, what happened is that in this relationship at one point, the older brother, born by a few minutes more than the other brother, despised his birthright. As was the custom of the land, the firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance. And because one day when he came in from his hunting, he was very hungry, he sold his birthright. The Bible says he despised his birthright. Now, I thought that shortly thereafter, the story then went on, but it turns out that many years went by. When dad was getting older and he realized that he needed to pass on his blessing. And it was at this time in this biblical account that we read what happened. And deception came in. And as a result of it, the younger brother received the birthright that the older brother despised. And when the older brother came along later on, he did not get his blessing. And the Bible says that he bided his time until his father would die, then he would kill his brother. Now, let me ask you something. 
the feelings that are going on in between these two brothers. Do you think their relationship is broken? I would say so. Now, you know, young men, young ladies, you know, you may have had some fights with your brothers and sisters over the years. But I don't think any of us really went to the point where our brother said or our sister said, I'm going to kill you. But that's what happened here. And as a result of that, the mother conspired to get the younger brother away and sent him off. Because the older brother by this time had married wives from the idolatrous nations around. And that really hurt the hearts of his parents. Years went by. Years went by in the account, and we read in Genesis chapter 33 about what happened. And I know that at least 14 years went by, because the account is that the young man spent 14 years getting his wives. But by this time, he had children. And so around, we figure around 22 years came by, and we have the younger brother coming back to where he grew up. And the older brother is waiting for him. Now... Sometimes time heals wounds. Sometimes it does not. But in this particular case, the biblical account is very clear in chapter 33 when we begin to read that when Esau saw his brother, after so many years, he did not hate him anymore. Instead, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Happy to see one another again after being reunited for so many years. You know, one of the hardest things to go through life is the breakup of a relationship with someone. Especially if you are really close to that someone and you've known them for a long time. Especially if they're family. You know, once a relationship ends, it can be very difficult to restore it. The more intimate you are with someone, the deeper the pain goes when things go wrong. The good news is that you can find and you can restore relationships if everyone in the relationship is willing to put forth the effort to bring about healing. But it may take time, but the end result is well worth it. But there's a gentleness that we also see in this story in Genesis chapter 33 that I also want to bring in in verse 12. And it says, when Esau said to Jacob, let's go back to my home. And he says, let's go. And of course, Esau's there with his armed men. They're mobile. They're swift. They're fast. And Esau responds with concern for those who were in his care and keeping by saying in verse 13, and he, Jacob, said to Esau, my Lord knoweth that the children are tender and the flocks and herds with me, with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children be able to endure, until I come unto my Lord at Mount Seir. What we see here is humility and gentleness, which are worthy attributes in restoring relationships, and also in maintaining them. It especially matters with family. In Adventist Home, page 179, we read, The family firm is a sacred social society in which every member is to act a part, each helping the other. The work of the household is to move smoothly like the different parts of a well-regulated machine. 
every member of the family should realize that responsibility rests upon him individually to do his part in adding to the comfort, order, and regularity of the family. One should not work against another. All should unitedly engage in the good work of encouraging one another. They should exercise gentleness, like Jacob did. Forbearance and patience, speaking in low, calm tones, shunning confusion, and each doing his utmost to lighten the burdens of the mother. And I would say lighten the burdens of one another. You know, however, it makes it very difficult. There are some things that make it difficult for us to repair relationships that are broken. One of the most common obstacles to repairing a relationship is pride. Pride keeps people apart. There's no secret formula in overcoming pride in a broken relationship. In a broken relationship, you have to have the grace of God to overcome pride in order to rebuild that relationship. Secondly of all, time can get in the way of healing. Time can work in your favor, but it can also work against you. In what way? Ephesians 4, verse 26, Paul says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. What Paul is saying is the sooner you go about beginning the process of healing in a broken relationship, the better. Time has a way of desensitizing us that it causes us to not see the need for that person like we do when the problem first occurs. You know, there are some of us who have not spoken to our brothers or sisters for decades. Decades. I know of people who have done that. You know, as time time goes along, we can allow bitterness to set in, which exaggerates the problem even more. Thirdly, wrong voices can come from inside of us. People at work sharing their thoughts, the neighbor, the media. You know, we have to use discernment and not listen to advice that's not consistent with the law and the testimony as it might lead us to maintain a broken relationship. Now, I have to admit, I'm going to stop at this point. In abusive relationships, abusive relationships, restoring a relationship that's abusive to begin with, where there is no healing on both sides of it, I I am not, I don't see the value of getting into a relationship where the abuse will then pick up and continue. Does that make sense? I am not talking about that kind of a situation. We're talking about the situation here where we recognize that with godly counsel, we may be encouraged to restore a relationship that has been broken. Lastly, our unwillingness to mend relationships is when the other person is unwillingness to make amends. We are unwilling to restore a relationship because the other person is unwilling to say they're sorry, to make amends. You know, that can create more pain for the person who badly wants to restore the relationship. The main thing is to be patient and to give the other person space while affirming your love for them. I have to tell you that it is a challenge at times because I know my wife and I are involved in counseling many individuals and particularly in situations of abuse when the other person has never apologized for their actions which has resulted in the breaking of the relationship, you can still in your heart be at peace toward that person and not harbor bitterness without having to get into that situation again. Does that make sense? The point that we're making is that you need to be settled in your heart what the Lord would have you to do with your side of the fence because for you to continue to carry bitterness in your heart is not going to give you the healing that you desire. So may God bless us as we go forward 
in building broken relationships. This morning, I um, felt impressed to change courses in what I'm going to share with you this morning. So I'm going to play it safe and stick very close to my notes. So because when I ad lib, I tend to go a lot longer. So I'm not going to do that. Humility is a posture of the heart that finds expression in our um, attitudes, our words, and our actions. In marriage, husbands and wives have the potential for hurting each other very deeply um, through their words. And those words originate, where do words come from? Where are they found first? In our thoughts. The thoughts and the attitudes that we hold in our hearts that we rehearse in our minds, the, the, the motives that we cherish. Matthew 15, 19 says, For out of the heart proceeds um, thoughts, murders, fornications, etc. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We are usually blind to our own selfishness, blind to our own defects of character. Other people can see them easily, but we cannot. And that is why the psalmist said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. A, a very worthy prayer for us to pray on a daily basis. So, taming the tongue, which is a virtuous discipline of a godly wife, essentially requires that we first recognize and surrender the, uh, the negative thoughts, the negative feelings that we're harboring in our hearts, the self-centered attitudes, the selfish motives. And it, re it requires that we recognize, that we able, be able to see those with the help of the Holy Spirit and that we surrender them, asking in faith that the Lord replace those with the heart and mind of Christ. Humility is essential if we are to live together in, in harmony, especially with our spouse that we're so close to. Humility is not natural to us. It's not natural to any of us. It is natural to Christ. But praise the Lord that he says that by beholding, we can be changed. Our hearts can be softened. They can be subdued, even broken, and made tender to recognize our selfishness and to, um, to long for and receive the gift of repentance and the longing to have the mind of Christ. And he is eager to satisfy that longing and re reproduce his character in us. As wives, we are commanded in Scripture to submit to our husbands. I am honoring and obeying Christ um, when I show my husband love and respect when I exercise self-control, putting off any wrong speech. Colossians 3.8 says, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication. Put all of it out of your mouth. The problem is that we live in an age that fosters, that encourages pride. Such attitudes as looking out for number one. Have you heard that? Have you heard that term before, that phrase? 
That reveals the attitudes and the priorities of this degenerate age. The thought of submission is distasteful and unwelcome to anyone, to put it very mildly. Yet, think about this, friends. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Creator and Lord of all, the King, by whom all things were made, and without Him, John says, was not anything made that was made. He gladly shows his submission to the Father and clearly demonstrated that attitude all throughout his life here on earth, often saying things like, my food, my meat, is to do the will of him that sent me. What does that mean? My food, my sustenance. Food is one of the things that we long for the most if we don't get it for an extended period of time. That's how much Jesus who is the king of the universe, who is equal to God, wanted to be submitted to the will of his Father because this is God's, God's order of things. If he, being the most exalted one, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, humbled himself even to the point of being obedient unto death, surely I, in my infinitely lower sphere, I can learn to do the same. If I have fellowship with him, he says that I can be changed. So trusting him and his order of creation, I can gladly obey his command for me as a wife to submit, to humbly submit to my husband's headship and show him respect and honor and love as Jesus gladly submits showed submission to his father. My humility, which is demonstrated in my uh, ability to show respect to my husband, even when I strongly disagree with him, that humility will be in proportion to my level of acquaintance with my Lord. Because as, we, as I said, it's not natural in me. I have to receive that supernaturally. If I cannot tame my tongue, if I'm disrespectful, if I cannot submit to Christ by speaking respectfully to my husband, it is because I don't know Christ. I don't have an intimate knowledge and acquaintance with him. To know him is to love him. And loving him, knowing him, and loving him awakens the desire in my heart to please him, to imitate him, to honor him, to understand his will in every respect, and to satisfy what will be an intense desire in my heart to do his will. A heart that is humble and tender toward God um, and empty of any selfish agenda is ready. That heart is ready to be filled. It is eager to please. It is ready to receive direction from the one that we are submitted to. The truly humble heart harbors an intense desire to follow the will of God. You know, we were blessed to behold the beauty of a heart that is fully surrender to God through a very challenging uh, period in her life. 
um, as we watched our Shantae in that season, just preceding her courtship um, to Luke Fisher. You got only bits and pieces of the story yesterday, and I'm going to give you just a little bit more background in order to illustrate um, what I would like to illustrate. Because she clung to her desire not to attach her heart's affections to a man that she was not certain was the will of God for her, even after learning accidentally that we had been communicating with him for months, she chose not to know. We gave her a choice. You know, at that point we said, okay, we can tell you, we can tell you this, the whole story, we can tell you all about him. She chose not to know because she was already feeling so, um, so drawn to him that she didn't want to learn anything that would make it more difficult for her to strictly be on neutral and want the will of God. We knew that for months he was wrestling with uncertainty as to whether he should go forward, as he would put it, you know, should I go forward on left brain principle? <laughs> because, because he didn't know her personally, that's, that's what it was to him, just moving forward, you know, by faith on the knowledge of everything that he had learned about her, but not through her. Rather than trying to impress us, uh, we had seen his integrity through those months as he revealed to us his weaknesses and as he expressed to us his doubt that, um, that God considered him worthy of her. He had learned uh, through our correspondence just about everything that he could possibly know about her without knowing her personally. But given the Neblet family's unconventional standards and practices that made it so difficult um, for a young man to really get to know one of our young ladies, there were too many uncertainties in his mind that troubled him. Like, you know, what if once he knew her personally, what if he didn't fall in love with her? What if he broke her heart? What if he disappointed his parents who also had it in, her, in their hearts that they wanted this to go forward. Since we didn't know whether God would ever put it in his heart to move forward, we also thought it best. Just as she said, no, I don't even want to know, we thought it was best that she not know the extent to which our prayerful examination of his character during those months had convinced, convinced us, at least, that he was. We considered him worthy of her. So even though she didn't know personally how wonderful he was, um, because she didn't have any personal communication with him during those months, she found it strangely hard to keep him out of her thoughts. And we wanted her to be free. We had stopped, we, we had thought it was best to stop communicating with him, which we did for several months. And we thought it was best for her to be free from any desire um, for a relationship with him if he was not God's choice for her. We also stopped talking about him in our home, uh, thinking that this would help her. But after months of that, one day in a moment of candid sharing, mother-daughter, as we were working in the greenhouse, I asked her, how's your courage, honey? And in my question, she really read what I really was asking. I wanted to know, because we had stopped talking about it, what was in her heart. And 
a couple of months had gone by, many weeks. Um, and so she immediately, just very candidly, told me she could not understand why, if she was doing everything that she knew and that she had preached about, uh, to cooperate with God, um, to govern her thoughts, not, you know, to dwell on Him, then why was it that she had dreamed about Him every single night for the past couple of months? And I remember being suspicious after that conversation that, even though I didn't voice it to her, that maybe it was God that was keeping this in her heart. Maybe, you know, even though at that point we were thinking it was over and nothing was going to happen, I thought at that moment it must, it must be God. That's the only explanation. But what I'm trying to illustrate to you is that during those months of uncertainty, Shante wrestled with God on an almost daily basis just seeking to quiet her heart before God and not to be anxious to know, you know, just wanting to move forward in her life and, and abandon every thought of that. And each time we saw her um, just hit the hills around our home in the National Forest, um, she would come back with the peace of heaven in her countenance. Often she would, she would get just a little irritable and we knew that she was wrestling and she would just take off and go spend time with God and she would come back and it was a miracle before our eyes with this meekness this softness in her eyes and we could tell that she had been crying um, this humility this spirit of service to our family and just a quiet heart with God that, friends, that um, was to us a, a sermon that was preached to, to us every day. And if you knew Shante, you would know even understand the significance of that uh, more so because Shante is very, she's very capable. Um, we all admire her greatly. She's highly committed to the Lord. She's very bright. She's very social. She's the most social of our whole family. We, even though we can stand up here and talk with you, the truth is some of us are extremely introverted at heart. So I actually find it difficult, you know, after this is over, to come and talk to you personally. That's hard for me. I have to step out of my box, force myself out of my box to do that. Shante is not like that. She's very confident. She would go in this room and just talk to all of you. So, um, it is actually difficult for a person who is naturally self-confident to be humble and to be surrendered to God. It's much more difficult. So we saw a transformation, a softening of her character during those months that was very beautiful before our eyes. So the greatest gift that I can give to my husband as a wife, that I can give to my children, that I can give to you, is to accept the mind of Christ, to allow you to see Christ in me. And that is something that he promises we can have if we just come before him, quiet our hearts, and learn to wait on him. I was actually going to uh, share with you a little bit of what I said I was going to share from her journal, but I'm out of time, and I actually providentially left it in the room, so it's good. So... Um, that is my appeal to you. And um, 
just as a, a slight clarification, even though there are some members in our family that are a little bit more introverted, uh, that does not mean that, that we don't want to talk to all of you and meet you. If we have not met you before and had that chance to speak with you, then we would love for you to come up and talk to us. So we've, we've been discussing about um, humility. Mother was talking specifically about uh, submission um, in the, the wife, in the, the marriage um, connotation. I'd like to talk for a minute about respect. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting. I went to the dictionary on my phone just to see what, what the, the generally accepted definition of respect is. And the definition that, they, that I first came up with, the, very one, the one on the very top said, behavior intended to please your parents. This is a completely, it's a, it's a worldly dictionary. Or a secular, I should say, dictionary. And I thought that was interesting that their interpretation of respect had to do with the relationship between child and parent. Now, I agree with that. I agree that, that the, the topic of respect has a lot to do with that. However, I also believe that it goes beyond that. It goes beyond just a relationship that a child can have with, with a parent. In fact, we can have respect in any relationship that we have in our lives. The the uh, the connotation of that I, I thought it was a little bit a little bit shallow because it's it's like when it's talking about a behavior intended to please your parents it's talking about an action it's it's defining respect as an action right it's almost as if people are thinking um, when when people think of respect it's respect those boundaries respect that respect me right but what are they really saying? Conform or reform your actions to be in alignment with that or this or me, right? But friends, I had to ask myself, isn't there more to respect than conformity? Absolutely, yes. I believe that there is. Another definition that I found that I liked, I found much more favorable, was this. Respect. Favor or care regard, esteem others. So this one I liked because I believe that respect is, it's, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of, of esteeming others better than ourselves. Now that is, um, it's an easy thing to say. It's a very difficult thing to do because it absolutely cross grains every fiber of pride in the human, in the human soul. It is, it is natural for humanity to try to be the top dog, to climb, clamor to the top of the hill, even at the expense of others. It is in God's nature to become the servant, to wash our feet. So I, I had to ask myself, how really does this, does this play out in my life? You know, one, one example that I can think of, esteeming other, other, people's, um, other people's opinions or, or their desires, their likes greater than my own. Um, one, one simple little example, in, in our home, and I'm, I'm learning on this one, I have by no means mastered it, my mother and my sister 
they really like the men in their lives to be clean shaven. And I have to admit that I, um, I find it inconvenient to shave, and so I do not do it all the time. Um, but Mother Natasha, it is something that is very important to them. And if I am truly, truly trying to, um, to respect their wishes, even though it's, it's not something that I have to do, I mean, I'm not uh, obligated to shave for my mother and my sister. But if I am, if I am esteeming their, um, their desires, their opinions, then I would do that. So, Mother Natasha... I hereby commit in front of all of these witnesses <laughs> that I will strive to do better. <laughs> Hallelujah. You know, friends, I dare say that if, if, if young people and if parents, if they, if they behaved in this level of, of deference and respect to each other, that a lot of the, the friction, the conflict that we would see in the family today would evaporate. It would absolutely evaporate. Now, we could talk about um, a number of different things. I think uh, talking about the subject of respect, it would, be, it would be definitely fitting to bring up the, the subject of obedience. Ephesians 6, verse 1, where it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Oh, and then also, honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first command with a uh, promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long, on the earth. Now it's easy for us to to look at that verse and to think, you know, yes, okay, so children they need to obey their parents when they're when they're young. When we think of the word children, we automatically think of, you know, four, five, six, seven. And it's true. God intended for for the young childs to be in the, the home of their parents and to be able to learn through that, that relationship with their parents in in living in obedience to them, to learn to live in obedience to their Heavenly Father as well. But when do we, or do we, I should say, ever outgrow the title of a child? Children, obey your, your parents in the Lord. The answer is yes. We're, we don't, we're not always children, per se, but we're always a child, right? Okay, no, I said that backwards. We're not always a child, but we're always children, right? We're always sons and daughters of someone, even if our parents, say, have, have passed on. So even, like, for a young adult child, you could say, of my parents, there is something to this principle. It's, it's not, I don't believe the scripture is saying that the parents, once you've, you know, once a child has moved out of the home and they're, they're, they're living their own life um, under God, that the parents have authority, per se, over their, over their children. I don't believe that that's what the scriptures are saying. However, I do believe that as young people grow, their, their responsibility before God to honor their father and their mother never outgrows. Even as we never outgrow our responsibility to honor our God, our Heavenly Father. And, and so, as for, for young adult children, I mean, how that might look is exactly like what I just finished sharing. Um, you know, the deference that we have and, and respecting our, our parents' um, counsel in our lives. One of another small example, you know, our parents, even though we are young adult children living in the home, they, they, respect, our, um, they respect our age. They're not telling us when to go brush your teeth and all that kind of stuff like they would when we were just children. Um, 
But yet they still, they still, when we ask them for their counsel, which we do, because if any young person is wise, they will, because our parents are much more, um, have much more life experience than we do. And sometimes when they don't ask, they will also offer their counsel and their opinion. Uh, one, one example is, I, one of the things that I find uh, enjoyable to do is to go with a number of, of my friends that live in the community and go play racquetball in a town that's just an hour from, from our house. And my mother, on a couple of different occasions, has, has expressed her opinion about not making that um, a a frequent activity just because of the fact that it takes time out of my day, time out of my schedule to drive, you know, the time to go to the racquetball court, etc. And and I have really appreciated that because the truth is that I could in my my youth not consider all of the ramifications, the fact of the time that it's taking out of my schedule and I already live a busy schedule, there's there's things that I can't accomplish because of everything that I have going. So can I really afford to take so much time to go and do that activity? And so mother has never along the line said, I don't want you to go play racquetball because she respects my adult, young adult decision in that, but yet she offers her counsel. And I have appreciated that, um, not only in that instance, but many other instances as well. So again, in, in uh, closing here, we'll, closing my part, we'll move on to the next one. If we will... Um, operate all of our relationships in this, this context of respect, whether that be a, a child-parent relationship, a child-child relationship, a brother and sister, if we will respect each other and defer ourselves and, and hold other people's opinions and um, things that they need to accomplish above our own, then it will truly, truly increase um, the joy that we have and, and the the close-knit relationships that we enjoy in our family. So I want to talk about humility in the context of um, within our family, but also with, with other people that are at a peer level with ourselves. Um, let's look, how does humility express itself as a healing grace within those type of relationships? Relationships where we aren't necessarily connected by any you know, biological or family type. Let's look t- uh, in uh, Matthew 20. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there with me. There's a story we can learn from here. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. Matthew 20, 20 and 21. Then came to him, to Christ, we're speaking of, the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left, in thy kingdom. Uh-oh. Now, I mean, that, that's a nice request. If you want to be by Christ and everything, you want run to be on the right hand, want to be on the left hand, where is it better to be right by Christ? And we know um, from the account of the Gospels that John was often right there by Christ's side. We find him there in the Last Supper. We find him there, the only one of the disciples, except for Peter, who ended up making a, a, an unfortunate exit, the only one in, the, in Herod's judgment hall and in Pilate's judgment hall, the only one standing at the foot of the cross. And Christ bequeathed him his son. John did stay by the side of Christ. But here is James and John's mother 
coming to Christ with this request. In your kingdom, I want my sons to sit on your right hand and on your left hand. Is that okay? Came worshiping him, it says. Well, Christ, in his wisdom, of course, he's not like, no, you can't be my right hand, my left hand. He makes a, uh, answers them with a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink of? Oh, they're like, absolutely, we can't. He's like, well, you will, but I, it's not mine to give. I, I can't give that position to you. My father does that. But, continuing on in the story, verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. In other words, who do you think you are? Who do you think, you think you're better than me? What makes you think you should have the right hand of Christ instead of me? And of course, they're expecting him to set up an earthly kingdom, and they're going to have you know, earthly power over the Romans, finally get to have their revenge and all this other stuff. And everyone's irritated with James and John because they're trying to snatch the best places in the kingdom, you know, reserve the best places in the kingdom ahead of time. Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Let's see how Jesus responds to them. To them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority over them. This is what they're all thinking about, you know, have the, have the power. But it shall not be so among you. For whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. In the Greek, that references to running errands for everybody. Who wants to be great? Let him run errands for everyone. In, in the context of subservience. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your slave. Your servant is what the King James says, but is what the King James says, but in the Greek it's the same word as let him be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, how dare you reaction? You know, how dare you try to take that position? How dare you try to or even just within our family the same thing expresses itself. Someone's like, you never do such and such. You never take out the trash. Why don't you ever help me? And you're like, what did I do yesterday? Take out the trash? That reaction, that how, how, you know, how dare you, the defensive that often erupts into little myths and irritations and sharp words fly within the family, that reaction is not born of God. It's not born in the heart of God. God is a servant of his people. Though he is sovereign and though he deserves all worship, though he deserves everyone to bring him everything ever, and anyway, he created it anyway, so it belongs to him, no one could ever pay God back, and yet he spends his days serving his creation. Remarkable. The things that irk us about, you know, what our siblings said, or, or that or the, you always do such and such, or you never do that, or... Or you left your, you know, somebody else used our hairbrush and left their hair in it. And it's like, you know, I, I don't, I'm, did you notice I keep my brush clean? Next time you use my brush, actually, please don't use my brush at all. But next time you use my brush, <laughs> take your hair out of it. These reactions, where are, they, where are they coming from? Where are they born of? They're actually born of selfishness. It's hard. We don't like to admit it. But the defensive reaction who do, you, who do you think you are to ask for the right-hand spot in the new kingdom? Who, who, you know, to ask to be Jesus' prime minister. What makes you think you should be my prime minister? What are we thinking? 
course, I should be Jesus Prime Minister, right? I mean, we don't like to admit it because we, we try to, to think of ourselves in a nice, righteous light. But it's the truth if we really take a hard look at the way we're reacting to others. Defensiveness within communication has been something that, you know, I think we've revisited over and over and over again. When you're in the family and we're communicating, and, and um, all of our family, maybe you've picked up on this, maybe you haven't, we're pretty intense personalities. And so that same intensity gets carried with us into every sphere of life, pretty much. And so the way, the way that reacts within the family is that if there's something that goes on, then we can tend to address it in an intense manner. Joshua, you did such and such. You know, confronting. We, we, none of us have any problems with confronting each other or <laughs> anyone, I guess, which I suppose can be a strength at times, but often expresses itself as a weakness because when pride comes in and gets involved and thinks that somebody else should have done something else the way I think they should do it, then we go confront them in my, with my ideas, my thoughts, and then what's the other person's reaction or a reaction of defensiveness? Yes, I do do that, or no, I don't do that. And, and, why, and actually, you know, two years ago, such and such happened. And, and why did you do such and such two years ago? What relevance does two years ago have to right now? It gets you know, pulled out, and this data, and that supporting data, and pretty soon we've built ourselves a nice little I was going to say Sears Tower, but you know Willis Tower, I guess, is what it's called now, to, uh, for a case of what they should have done differently and, and why we have the right to be unhappy with them. And Jesus Christ has the right to be unhappy with the human race. He really does. And yet when he was being nailed to the cross by the, the, the race he created with his own hands, when those hands that stooped down into the dirt and formed man and then breathe into the nostrils their breath of life, and now those exact same hands are being nailed to a cross, yet his reaction is, Father, forgive them. When they're coming along in his, in his trial and saying, you know, I heard this man say, you know, that he's going to destroy the temple and that he's going to build it in three days. Now, Christ did not actually say that he was going to rip the temple down, that he, was, he, actually, he said destroy this temple, meaning you guys are going to do that. Now, Bill, but when they're taking his words in the trial and maligning them, and does Christ react with, that is not what I said. Why do I react that way then? The power of Christ is there to bring his healing grace into our family, to help us to respond the way he would respond. Because we're not willing to show deference to one another, because we're not willing to be the great one in the kingdom of heaven and run errands for everyone else, to be the servant of everyone else, because we, in our own humanity, are unwilling to do that, sharp words fly, unkind gestures are made, and hearts are torn apart. It is not actually the true spirit of service that causes, you know, some guy to see some cute girl he likes and go give her his chair or for the girl to, you know, some guy is making flattering statements to her and so she decides to fill his water bottle. That, I mean, it's, it's appropriate to do gestures of courtesy, correct? However, that is not actually service in its truest sense of the term. As Christ has said, if you want to be great, you need to serve everyone else. Where the rubber meets the road is clearly set forward. 
Matthew 25, verse 40, when Christ says, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. You see, there is this caste system in heaven. Here on earth, we see the great people, we see the powerful people, we see the political people, and, and, and we, we work to, to make them happy. You know, here comes the rich man, oh, give him the seat. You know, here comes that person, oh, here comes the president, fanfare, everybody clap. And I mean, it's appropriate to show respect to people in positions of this nature, correct? However, in the kingdom, in, in, in earth, we sacrifice the weak for the strong. Yeah, we can't, we can't bother with them just so long as we save the important one. In heaven, the strong are poured out for the weak. In heaven, the weak ones are the ones that are protected. In heaven, God himself, the strongest, goes and dies so that the lost can be saved. And that is what he is asking us to do. So who is the least to us? Who is a little account? Who is a little value? Who is that person that really gets under our skin? Who is that teacher that you know, did something to us that we that really you know, humiliated us and, and, and shamed us in front of other people. Who are these people that are of little account, little dignity in our eyes? Christ says, you know, as much as the way you treat them, that is the way you are treating me. That is the place where humility, where the rubber of humility meets the road of Christianity. It is a high standard, but if we follow it, and if we follow it with all our hearts, it will cure most of the relational issues in our life. All right, so... <clears throat> We've talked a little bit about the, the blessings, yea, the absolute necessity of humility within the context of, of home and family relationships, etc. And, and all that is important, classmates, workmates. Um, but this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. My mind reaches back to a dark hilltop named the place of a skull, where, where a king is pouring out his life, where an innocent man has been pinned to rough timber and left to die. And his is a hard lot. Just on a personal level, his is a hard lot. But in addition to all the pain and agony he has to suffer, he has to suffer the fact that his friends scattered at the first sign of his coming condemnation. He's been horribly tortured and abused, and now he's hanging there naked to the taunts um, and jeers and cries of um, a horde of mocking skeptics. And when he at last cries, it is finished, and the rocks split apart, and the whole mountain, the whole city reels, and the creator of life breathes his last something beautiful and amazing happens. There is a man, a skeptic, who stands there and looks up into his face and says, truly this was the Son of God. And my question is, what was it that he read there in the face of the king that told him this man is different? I'm, I'm powerfully persuaded that it was more than just the warring elements the, the breaking down of nature as the king of glory breathes his last, that convinced this centurion, this is God's son. I'm convinced that something in the marred and bleeding face of the innocent spoke loudly of patience towards his persecutors. 
and of benevolence towards his enemies. Which things are impossible to fake? And the soldier would know that. There is a world out there that does not understand the power of the gospel to change a life. They, they cannot fathom how it is that patience under tribulation can actually equate to freedom. But neither can they deny the power of the gospel in a life when they see it. The more I study the lives of the great revolutionaries and game changers of, of history, the more I am convinced that humility is one of their secret weapons, one of the strongest secret weapons. Not just the actions, you know, and not just in the, in the relationship between a son and a mother, a brother and a sister. It, it's a secret weapon which has the potential to break down the barriers set in place by skeptics by men who do not believe. So humility, how, how does it, how does it, what part does it play in the, in the, um, in the witness that we hold before the hearts and the lives of unbelievers? That is the question. Um, especially, especially potent is the influence of this humility on the mind and heart of a skeptic when the skeptic shares your last name. Because like the centurion looking up into the, into the face of the condemned, they know you can't fake it either. You have no reason to. There is more, there is a power in meekness that will always be a mystery to those who don't possess it. It's a mystery to those who do possess it. But there's a power in meekness, a power in humility that will always be a mystery to those that, um, that don't possess it. And the question remains, how do I become a possessor of this mystery? How do I become a possessor of this, of this principle so that not only my relationships within, you know, within the family can be sweetened, but my relationship with, with the skeptic, my relationship with the stranger, with the unbeliever, can be utterly and totally transformed. I return over and over in my mind to the analogy of a black walnut. Now, undoubtedly, you've seen a black walnut. Hopefully, you've tried to open one without the use of some, you know, machine or hydraulics. The outside is almost as hard as a stone. And inside, the nut is so soft that if you squeeze it between your fingers, oil comes out. But inside that shell, the nut is absolutely safe. You can, you, know, you can step on it, you can run over it, you can throw it in boiling water, throw it against a wall, scream at it, scowl at it. It doesn't matter. All tactics equally ineffective. It's in the shell. The walnut is as secure as if there were no antagonist. Now, this is a simple example, but it bears a poignant lesson that we would be well to contemplate and to, to seek to apply to our own lives. The book of Colossians, um, the chapter of Colossians 3, opens with these beautiful words. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above 
where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth, for ye are what? Ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Friends, if I am dead, if my life is truly hid with Christ in God, then there is no owning an insult. There can be no response to a threat. I am not troubled by any opinion. In fact, I can be as at peace as if there were no antagonist. Because my life doesn't really matter anyway. Now, I'm speaking to you as the chief of sinners because over the years I have been hounded by this, the, the constant objections of my flesh to, to you know, like Natasha was saying, the how dare you response to the way that I'm treated or mistreated or maligned, you know, in my mind, accused to my face, um, you name it. And I have spent a huge amount of time pondering this question. How, how do you, you know, how do we solve this problem in my life, scheming, you know, on ways to, and you know what I found out? I found out that the secret to victory lies not in a complex battle plan full of contingencies and countermeasures. The secret, the answer is Christ. Christ, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. Christ, who, though he was tracked every step by a traitor that was trying to unravel his plans, unravel his kingdom from the inside out, responded always in love. Christ, who reached out to the, the infighting and the, the, of the rank and chain of command, all these arguments that were constantly surfacing among his disciples, he, he, he responded by girding himself with a towel and serving his servants. Washing his disciples' feet. The Christ who is the creative word has the power to transform. So rather than figure out, okay, if I get into such and such a situation and I know that I will be tempted to respond, uh, you know, respond in such and such a way, but that would probably be pride. Therefore, what I'm going to do is when I'm, when I'm stuck in such and such, such a situation, I will remember this and I will recite this and then I will hmm, take three deep breaths and I will just slow down and I will try to... You know. The answer is Christ. The answer is Christ. All who come to love him first cannot possibly be found loving their own supremacy. And if I, am not, if I have no reason to love my own supremacy, then I have no reason to take offense. This is not rocket science. This is the simple power of the gospel. Man hidden in his maker, like the, like the nut hidden in the shell. And thus, the image of the loving God in and to the world revealed in human flesh. That, my friends, is an argument that no infidel can gainsay. And that's a beautiful promise. We're going to end this session uh, by singing a song together. It's a scripture song. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we'll have closing prayer, and then we'll reconvene momentarily. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, 
And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, to the glory of God the Father, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we want to have the mind of Christ Jesus in our relationships. We want to have the mind of Jesus when it comes to healing broken relationships. We know that it starts with our relationship with you where we see how you, God of the universe, came and did not think it robbery to be equal with God and that you humbled yourself. We can in your strength do the same thing and by your grace, heal those broken relationships in our lives. Thank you for the power of the gospel to accomplish this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.